guys, it's Melissa. Since we're an independent podcast, your support means the absolute world, whether that's on social media, in a podcast review, or a word of mouth recommendation. If you've been enjoying this podcast and would like to take it a step further, I now have a support feature where you can contribute a one-time donation at whichever price you'd like. Click the link in the episode description to learn more. Thanks guys, now enjoy the show. The Sisterhood of the Bottomless Mimosa. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Mimosa Sisterhood podcast. This is your host, Melissa, and I am back for another episode of Women, Wine, and History. And I have another guest joining me on the mic today. We have Marisol Lunsford, who's back for her second guest appearance on the Mimosa Sisterhood podcast. And her and I unintentionally picked women with very common themes in their life story. So I am covering a woman who is very well known. Like we've learned about this woman since we were kids in middle school. However, we did not learn all of the juicy and crazy details about her life that I am going to reveal in today's episode. And Marisol is covering a woman who I'd never heard of before, but who has an incredibly inspirational life story. And Marisol educates us in today's episode. So I learned so many new things in Marisol's woman's life story, and I'm just super excited for everybody else to learn something new today. Before we get into it, I just wanted to remind everybody that we have a monthly podcast newsletter that I send out to my whole email list once a month, and it's really, really cool, you guys. It's a combination of little updates and highlights about the podcast, but I include so much fun, exciting information that's relevant to women's lives. So anything from updates in women's news, updates in women's health, any breaking news in the media that relates to women. I do a lot of quirky fun stuff, such as new moon manifestations. I do a female fun facts corner where I provide a lot of weird things that you maybe have never heard of that relate to women. And I always feature a female artist of the month that I have discovered and admire. Please do be sure to subscribe to the newsletter through my website so that you can receive it directly your email box and so that you can be one of the first couple of people that get notified of our upcoming merchandise launch. I am hoping to have a few super snazzy things available for purchase come April and anybody that is part of my email list will receive a very special promo code for the first product launch. So please be sure to sign up today And as usual, if you enjoyed this episode, share it with your friends, share it with your family members, share it with your coworkers. And if you haven't already, please be sure to leave a podcast review on Apple Podcasts. Five-star ratings and reviews go so far in the podcasting world and are the number one thing that helped me find other women who've never heard of the Mimosa Sisterhood podcast. So without further ado... I hope you enjoy the episode. 
welcome back, Marisol. How have you been? Hi, I've been good. How about you? I have been good. It's January. We got through the holidays. We're in 2021. It's a new year. <laughs> so, did you uh did you make it to midnight? Yes, barely. Yeah. <laughs> I went to sleep <laughs> at 11:45. I like honestly could not negotiate the last 15 minutes. Um, yeah, you know, it was without a doubt the most uneventful New Year's Eve I've ever had <laughs> in my entire life, but it seemed fitting. Actually, I do have a good story for New Year's Eve. <laughs> so in the morning, and it, it was kind of a shit show, so I guess, you know, it kind of goes in line with what we're talking about. So basically, I went on a bike ride down south from El Segundo to Redondo. Okay. And back. And when I got to Redondo, we hung out for a little while. And then on our way back, we were like, well, we have like nothing to do tonight. What should we do? And I was like, we should pick up some fresh fish and like barbecue tonight and like just have like cooking be our big giant New Year's Eve bash. Mm -hmm. So there's this little fish market right around Redondo Pier. We picked up some lobster tail and some shrimp. Wow. And rode our bikes all the way back to El Segundo with the fish. Uh-huh. And I guess we like lingered a little bit too long in, El- in Redondo Beach because by the time that we hit like Hermosa, wow. it was so fucking windy and like wind okay. coming directly at us. So we were like riding beach cruisers in like direct wind. And it was not ideal. It was really <laughs> not good. <laughs> And, um, you know, that bike ride is probably like, I think about 12 miles each way. Round. Oh, each way. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's. Yeah. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. I think it's about, it's about like 25 miles round trip. So we'd already wow. gone 12. And yeah. so we're heading And you got back. the fish at the farthest distance. Yes. Right? <laughs> cool. And so, you know, on the way back home, I think about like seven miles into it, I started to die. Like (laughs) I was not okay. And I was not doing well. Like one, I'm an asthmatic. Two, I'm really out of fucking shape. And three, there's like no gears on the bike. It's a beach cruiser. Right. It's like also like a hundred thousand pounds. Like beach cruisers are heavy. You know, they're not like a thin street bike with a bunch of uphill gears. It's just like driving you know like a a boulder across like the (laughs) beach in wind and so i like you got too ambitious too ambitious. well i've done that drive a thousand times i've just never had to do it coming back in the blazing wind so that was the first time it's been like that so i think like normally when we head back it's earlier but we had we were lingering too long so we just were stupid and didn't think it and then the wind came on Anyway, I basically couldn't get home. And my boyfriend had to leave me in Manhattan Beach on the bike path, race home to El Segundo, get his truck, and drive to Manhattan Beach and pick me up. Wait, did he bike? So he just hauled it. Yes, he hauled ass. But he's a mountain biker. So he's a bike guy anyway. Um, but yeah, I was like, oh my God, I am the 30 year old loser that had to pull over on the side of the road with my bike and my fish and wait to get picked up. (laughs) Oh my God. That is, did you just, you just had a birthday, didn't you? Yeah. In September. I'm 31. 
yeah, you've crossed over. <laughs> yeah, this I've is crossed the over. <laughs> severe injury from a sprain. Never walk the same again. This is that lump will always be there. <sighs> this is the can't ride a bike all the way back home. Yeah. Yeah. So you're there. That Welcome. Was- but I can ride a bike. I just can't ride it in direct wind. That was the difference. But anyway, the fish was fine. This wasn't a food poisoning story. Okay. It was just like, okay. I, I was- am incompetent and can't ride a bike. It's that story. So we got home and ate the fish and it was great. But yeah, I was just like, oh my God. I literally had never felt like a bigger like geek in my entire life. I just oh, sat there with really my good. bike and everybody was like passing me on the bike path. I was like, great. Just waiting to get picked up by the truck. Like, <laughs> You're like got a flat. Oh, darn bike. <laughs> yeah, pretty, pretty bad. But the fish was good. So high five to that. Yeah, that See, that was not lacking eventfulness, like in the slightest. <laughs> just humiliating uh, and embarrassing and just like, wow. This is fitting yeah. for the end of the 2020 year. It's all, honestly, it's all merging. I saw something that people um, are just deciding to start February 1st as the first of the year. It just feels like it's a toy. And I like, not to be dramatic or that's so headline or but really, like, I'm okay with it. Like, it's, it's a, I'm fine. I'm fine. We can start February 1st. It's yeah. Cool. I'm okay with matter. that, too. It's all relative, yeah. Well, yeah, so what did you do? You just chilled at home, hung out, got to bed early? Uh, Yeah, well, 11.45, so my husband and I (laughs) played a board game, and we watched... I can't even remember what we watched. We watched something, um, (laughs) but it was just like... we. So we have a two-year, almost two-year-old, and, you know, he's going to wake up at at 6, 6.30, no matter what, so... Um, but I really wanted to push it. We saw the 9 p.m. East Coast uh, celebration, if you will, if you want to even call it that. It was weird. <laughs> it was weird. Um, Dick Clark is dead. Uh, to be honest, I can't even remember when he died. Was he dead last year? But I'm not even sure. But it just wasn't the same. Ryan Seacrest. I just was like, okay. Right? And then um, whatever we were watching was over board game was done and we had 15 more minutes and I just was like why why so we didn't and we just went to bed and to be honest it was great and my son slept till like 6 45 which for him is sleeping in which is I felt like a gift yeah and we just stayed home the weekend we had a super good time but um yeah nothing crazy all right well what are we drinking what do you have to drink tonight so I, um, well, to be honest, uh, I went today to go pick up something and I went to just the local, um, we have a Bristol farm here, which is like a, a bougie light, uh, grocery store. And so they have like craft beer selection and I showed up there this evening and it was like empty. There was like, not, I don't know if it's like a shipment was missed or people are heavily drinking right now. I'm, I feel like it's a little probably a little bit of both but with that being said what was there was el segundo brewing company's uh, mayberry ipa i'm an ipa girl i love ipas mm-hmm. and this is actually what i drank the first night that we met because we met up in el segundo oh, yeah. um, and literally the shelves were like empty and it was a full row alone and then like almost empty shelf entirely of this and it just was like yeah so i picked was it that like up a six pack no, it's um. <laughs> oh, it's like one of those big ones. It's a big one because okay. I'm technically having a dry January, but I made an <laughs> exception. So I thought buying a pack was 
like against the rules, but one big bottle was just specifically for uh-huh. tonight. So I picked up this. Um, it's a seven per two, seven point two percent alcohol. Um, so decent, decent mm-hmm. amount. Tastes really good. And El Segundo Brew Company, you can see from your house, right? It's it's uh, yeah, right there. We, so we go to the El Segundo Brewery Company like every single week pre Corona. Yeah, and this is what I drank when we had the one and uh, only time that I went out and did anything during this <laughs> pandemic. And honestly, everything has closed down again. And I thought to myself, like, I'm so glad I did that. Like, I have that one moment to hold on to. Love a little neighborhood craft beer supporting our local brewers. All about it. Hopefully, El Segundo Brewing Company will be sponsoring this sp- podcast one day in the future once Absolutely. they reopen. We'll see. But tonight I am drinking some wine. And normally I, you know, I go by the the label, which is my mm-hmm. MO, but I yep. didn't today. Label's not that cool. It's fine. It's not that snazzy. But I was at the Trader Ho's earlier today getting myself some groceries. And they have this wine on like a huge display by itself, like this big old pyramid tower, and the giant sign that said, It's back in stock. So I was like, oh, shit. Okay, okay I yeah. guess this must, must be the jam. I, I'm going to get it. So I'm drinking Technique. It's a Cabernet Sauvignon from Alexander Valley, Sonoma County, 2018. It's, All right. Has That's this a pretty little... decent um, – looks like a sun with a uh, – that looks like a compass symbol, yes. kind of. So, mm-hmm. it, so I was reading the back, and it says that – it's developed by Englishman Edmund Gunther during the late 16th century. And Gunther's quadrant was an early form of timekeeping oh. uh-huh. used to find useful information such as hour of the day. And these tools were utilized for early forms of winemaking. So, That's a story. Right? I enjoy that they brought in some nuance of winemaking from ye old times. I right? appreciate that. What's it I taste know. like? It's bomb. Um, it's very good. Oh. It is normally Cabernets can sometimes be a little bit like, I don't know, like potent, dry, chalky. This is very fruity. It's easy to drink. Like sometimes I think Cabernets, they have to be paired with like a strong food. This does not. I would totally drink it by itself. And it's, good i'm not surprised everybody's been after it and it's finally back in stock so highly recommend trader joe's technique red wine and i think it was like eight (laughs) dollars nice well cheers cheers your asmr pour yes (laughs) (laughs) gotta do it for the for the guests guys it's it's just everybody loves it it's for the audience (laughs) All right, well, should we we get into it? Is it time? Yeah, let's do it. It is time. Okay, cool. So uh, I already gave you a sneak peek of who I was covering earlier, so it's no surprise to you. But I'm super excited about this woman because she is somebody that everybody has heard of, but I'm not sure if everybody knows her story. I sure as hell did it. And then when I researched it, I was like, oh my God, are you fucking kidding me? So tonight I'm covering a woman whose 
formal name is Joanna Sullivan. We all know her as Anne Sullivan. And if you're thinking oh, to yourself, why does yes. Anne Sullivan sound so familiar? I feel like I know that name. Who is she? Why can't I pinpoint who she is? But I feel like I know it. Well, it's because you do know her. She's extremely famous and she's responsible for the success of one of the most well-known women in history who goes by the name Helen Keller. So Anne Sullivan yes. was Helen Keller's teacher. No, not a thing about her. Okay, so that's what I'm wondering. Like, I want the audience to like listen to this episode, hit me up, and tell me if you knew anything about Anne Sullivan before this episode, other than the fact that she was just Helen Keller's teacher. Like, is and that- like where you learned it, right? Like, because I don't think that that was commonly taught. So if no. you did hear it, like where? I mean, we all learned about Helen Keller. I mean, and I think we learned about her when we were young. I can't really pinpoint the exact age range that I was that I was introduced to Helen Keller. Or when was that brought up? Was it just like... I don't even remember. I don't either. I don't remember when that was at social studies. Like, (laughs) I have no clue. Huh. That's funny. Okay. But we did learn about her. I feel like she's a staple in education. Everybody hears her story. And we all learn the name Anne Sullivan. But we don't hear a single thing about her upbringing, upbringing, her childhood, her life story, other than the fact that she helped Helen Keller, you know, read and write and prosper, really. So I'm about to blow your fucking mind. Because this lady has the most insane story and i was literally before this episode started i was sitting here recap like cleaning up my notes and i was telling my boyfriend guess who i'm covering tonight he's like who like ann sullivan he's like who's that and i was like you know the teacher that taught helen keller and he was like oh yeah i was like she has a crazy fucking story and he's like i doubt it's crazier than helen keller's and i was like (laughs) i beg to differ What's like, funny is that I had mentioned the clue to my husband, and he was like, I mean, listen, it is pretty spectacular that Helen learned to read and write, but it's crazy to think that someone was able to teach her to read and write, and that person is something we know nothing about. So, absolutely. I'm super stoked to dive into that. And I mean, Anne went through a series of trial and tribulations that somehow no one thought was relevant to add to the story of Helen and Anne. So, I'm going to do it today, and yes. I'm really excited to see your reaction. <laughs> I can't wait. I hope the listeners will reach out and tell me what they think and if they had ever heard anything about this before. I think it's a, a good conversation that we should all be having. Um, but without further ado, here's the story of Anne Sullivan. So she was born on April 14th, 1866 in Feeding Hills, Massachusetts, Her parents immigrated to the United States from Ireland during the Great Famine of the 1840s, and they had five children, two of which died as infants. So Anne and her two surviving siblings were what was left with the parents, and they grew up in very poor conditions, and all of them struggled with health problems. At the age of five, Anne contracted an eye disease called trachoma, which mm-hmm. caused many painful infections and left her partially blind without any reading or writing skills. Wow. 
did we know that? No. That Helen Keller's teacher as a child was practically blind with no reading or writing skills? No, not at all. Um, Wait, isn't that Helen Keller? (laughs) I'm confused. So that's interesting. Then two years later, when Anne was eight years old, her mother died from tuberculosis, leaving her father Thomas to care for the three remaining children. Hella organ trail. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So Anne had a very strong personality as a kid, and she often clashed with her father, who was abusive. Hmm. Not a good dynamic there. And this fucking dick eventually (laughs) just abandoned his kids. Wow. So Anne's mom is dead, and the father, Thomas, takes off and vanishes, and he leaves the three remaining children just to be homeless by themselves. Not good. Anne and her younger brother, Jimmy... I have no clue what happened to the third kid. There's oh, no, no mention. There's no mention of the third child. There's supposed to be three kids left. I don't know what happened to the That's third. I don't even have a name. So all we have is Anne and Jimmy. Kid number three is a mystery. Uh, R.I.P. I mean, that's what yeah. I'm assuming, you know? Yeah. So Anne and her younger brother, Jimmy were sent off to a run-down and overcrowded home for the poor, which was called Tewksbury Almhouse, which was really more of a, like, prison institution. Mm-hmm. And it also had, like, its own on-site hospital. So I think this place, I did a little research on it because I was like, I don't understand what the fuck was this place. I think it originally started off as a place where poor people were sent or, like, homeless poor people were sent. And it, like, over time evolved into a hospital institution for the, like, mentally ill, anybody who had, like, any kind of addiction problem, poor immigrants, mostly Irish for some reason, and then people that were, like, classified as, like, legally insane. So they just threw these kids into this uh, it, this place and that's where they were going to live after they got abandoned so it's not quite like an orphanage because it's not just children no. it's just literally anybody on the way by the wayside yes and th- creepy enough okay so they so it opened and then a couple years later they actually started taking like formal record of the people that were being like housed there mm-hmm. and so based off of some of these records that have been found by historians or whoever the hell they <laughs> came to the conclusion that one third of the population in this house were abandoned children and the remaining adult population were 64% male so it was just like a shitload of kids and a bunch of like adult men. And that just a gives me the most cringe, disgusting yeah. feeling ever. I'm sorry. Tell me again where this was. In Massachusetts. Okay. Yeah. So it was a f- weird place. I- I- we don't really know what was going on there. Also creepy and eerie and disgusting is that based off of the records that these people have found at this institution, like years later, they were calling the people that lived there inmates. So that's strange. 
So yeah, like I personally think it was like that's not an accidental a, choice of wording. No, yeah. <laughs> I think it was a a bunch of sick fucks created this like poorhouse, got all these like down and out people, and just like fucked with them. Basically, I think they probably ran tests on them. I think they abused them. They just were bad people. That's what I think. That's just my own speculation. But I mean. It, it it's strange experimentation <laughs> for sure was happening. yeah yeah and this isn't uncommon i mean i covered nelly bly a long time ago she's one of my most favorite women that i've ever covered one of my most favorite women in history she was living in this around the same time period and she was a journalist who decided to go on a like secret undercover investigative mission into an ins- a women's insane asylum because she felt like oh, like mm-hmm. weird shit was going on in there. So she posed as like a crazy lady, got admitted to this hospital and was there for like two weeks, basically p- playing out an act, but like collecting data. And wow. she was on the spot. Everybody there was foreign. They couldn't speak English. They were immigrants and they were all being abused and like tortured. Uh. So it's just like, I think fucked up shit used to happen like this a lot more than we know. And yeah. also probably still in I was many gonna say places in the world. That, yeah, that makes me really uncomfortable. So the first thought I was like, and now, and still now. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So ugh, it's disgusting. Um, so yeah, that's where Ann Sullivan lived for <laughs> several years of her childhood. So while her and her brother were there, Jimmy, of course, had a weak hip condition and died of tuberculosis four months into their stay. So Mm. Anne was by herself at this little house, and she ended up doing two different eye operations because they had that hospital that was there. Uh, Both of them were unsuccessful. Mm. So I don't know exactly what that means, but they didn't go – they didn't pan out how they had hoped it would. And then, while she was there, reports and rumors started to flood around the house about cruelty that the inmates were enduring, which included sexually perverted practices and cannibalism. What? Yeah. Was this like a government-funded facility or a private-funded facility? Probably private. I think it was private. Yeah. Um, Because after these reports came out, the Massachusetts Board of State Charities ended up launching an investigation in 1875. And so I don't know how they found out. It was probably something like Nellie Bly stormed in and was like, fuck this. (laughs) But they launched an investigation. And so... They were being investigated and, like, things had to start, like, running more smoothly. And so Anne has a quote that I wanted to read that was based off her experience while she was there. So she says, very much of what I remember about Tewksbury is indecent, cruel, melancholy, gruesome in the light of grown-up experience, but nothing corresponding with my present understanding of these ideas entered my child mind. Everything interested me. I was shocked, pained, grieved, or troubled by what happened. Such things did happen. People behaved like that. That was all there was to it. It was all the life I knew. Things impressed themselves upon me because I had a receptive mind. Curiosity kept me alert and keen to know everything. What a unique spin 
on experiencing those things. That is truly a personal, you can't, you can't teach that. You just are that like what, um, that's, that's what gave her, (laughs) mine is obviously avoiding tuberculosis, but that's like what gave her the ability to survive that. Yeah. And you know, she had no, she had no family. Everybody was gone. No parents, no siblings, gone. She was the only lasting person in her family that survived. And she was stuck in this house. And everything around her that was fucked up was happening from adults, whether they were the 64% of grown men that she was surrounded by or the staff. But she, I mean, she never had it good. No, 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 no. Crappy as that is, that. But I mean, her description of her experience is like so methodical. It's like very like um non emotional. It's, yeah, it's kind of like matter of fact. Yeah, pragmatic. Um she's just like, this is the way it was. This is all I knew. It sucked, but I like remained educated. I kept my eyes open. I, you know, wasn't ignorant to it and I made sure I knew what was going on because yeah. I mean I think just not being naive was what was going to, you know, keep her the safest. Yeah. So I wouldn't doubt that this is, um, you know, obviously a huge factor behind, like, what a fucking badass this woman was and, like, the challenges she was willing to take on later in her life. So, yeah. So two years after that, Anne was sent to a different hospital in Massachusetts where she had another unsuccessful unsuccessful eye operation. So this hospital was, like, run by nuns, and she was there for a while. She helped the nuns out in the wards, and she also went on errands in the community. So she was, like, in a much better place. Um, She was doing good, but, again, didn't have another successful operation, so just kind of, like, living her life. And then she was sent back to the city infirmary where she had another unsuccessful eye operation. Wow. And at that point – so that's, like, four now – at that point, she was transferred back to the Tabersky house or whatever that shit's no. called. She went back. They sent her back. No, um, take me to the nuns. What are I you know. doing? <laughs> I know. They sent her back to the crazy house. and But instead of putting her in the like building that was associated with the predominantly ill and insane patients. Gen pop? She- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> She was instead housed with the single mothers and unmarried pregnant women. Our people. Yeah. Yes. Single mothers and unmarried pregnant women were kept in this institution. So that's what I'm saying. It's like, what in the fuck was happening here? Okay. So then another inspection happened because the first one, clearly they didn't find enough. Um, so another inspection happened at this, this, this house in 1880 and it was led by a man named Franklin Benjamin Sanborn. He was the state inspector of charities. And while he was like on site conducting his investigation, Anne approached him and like straight up just like begged him to let her be admitted to the Perkins School for the Blind. Because keep in mind, like she was still partially blind right. while she was living yeah. here. She had several unsuccessful eye operations and like she was like, hey, you know, I need to go to like an actual school for the blind. Like I, I don't belong here. I need help. Like you guys aren't fixing me. You're just fucking up every operation that I've had. Yeah. 
So within months, he plead or he granted her plea. So she was sent to the Perkins School for the Blind, and this is where her story takes a much needed positive turn. Yeah. Um, after many years of very unfortunate living, situations. and I feel like I've heard that name before. That um, the name of that school before. So it's um, so cool to hear that those those institutions make such a difference in so many people's lives. Mm-hmm. In well, more ways than just the vision part. Her and, and Helen definitely um, brought a lot of awareness to the Perkins School for the Blind. Right. Yeah. So Anne began her studies at the Perkins School on October 7th in 1880. And while she was there, she befriended and learned the manual alphabet from Laura Bridgman, who was a graduate of Perkins and the first blind and deaf person to be educated there. And while she was at school, she also had a series of eye operations that significantly improved her vision. Oh, Finally. Yeah. Can you wait, can we pause? <laughs> can we pause for one second? Because yeah. <clears throat> you're throwing out dates like 1880, right? 18, yeah. 18, not 19. 1880. Okay. She said four or now numerous more, but previous, uh, I think it was four surgeries, right? In 18, in the 1800s. I don't want to, they weren't even cleaning wounds appropriately. How is she still having numerous surgeries in the 1800s? That is blowing my mind and making me very uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. And also just think about the fact that she has no family to be like a voice for her. There's no like adult figure to say like, hey, we're not like that sounds dangerous or this, you know, I'm not happy with this doctor. There was no one to advocate for her. Right. She was a child that was just being thrown on a table into surgery. Yeah. And what was done was done. They're just trying stuff. Yeah. Probably each surgery was like, a, we're trying this. Oh, yeah. man. Okay. Crazy. That's a lot of... I'm breathing deep. All right. I know. <laughs> I know. So in June 1886, she graduated at age 20 as the valedictorian of her class. So all of this was happening before she even turned 20 years old, and that's just mortifying. Wow. And after her graduation, the director of Perkins was named Michael Anagnos. He was contacted by Arthur Keller, who was in search for a teacher for his seven-year-old blind and deaf daughter, Helen Keller. And so Michael immediately recommended Anne for the position, and she began working for the Kellers on March 3rd, 1887, at their home in Alabama. As So <laughs> remember I mentioned earlier as a child that she had a strong personality and used to argue with her abusive father? Mm -hmm. Well, Anne showed up to the Keller's house and immediately started an argument with them about the Civil War and over the fact <laughs> that they used to own slaves. Yeah. So Alabama. that was her that was her uh huge entrance of hello as she took her first day on the job. Yes. Which is so <laughs> fitting to her personality. Twenty years old or she's twenty, right? She's yeah. just passed. Yeah, that's um you're here to teach a blind and deaf child and you're talking to us about civil rights, which is so fantastic. Yeah. I just love, too, that she just – it just shows that she, like, didn't care, you know? She was like, I'm starting the first day on the job, but I'm still going to talk shit to you for owning slaves. Like, right. <laughs> she just is like, fuck you, whatever. So, yeah, she was – I just love, like, learning those little quirks about her personality type. Yeah. Um, it's pretty cool. 
So she quickly connected with Helen, and it was the beginning of a 49-year relationship where Anne evolved from teacher to governess and then finally to companion and friend. Anne's curriculum involved a strict schedule with constant introduction of new vocabulary words, except she quickly changed her teaching style after seeing that it did not suit Helen. So instead, she began to teach her vocabulary based on her own interests by spelling each word out into Helen's palm. And within six months, this method proved to be working, as Helen had learned 575 words, some multiplication tables, and the Braille system. Wow. In six months. Wow. I mean, let's be clear, they didn't have shit else to do, you know? (laughs) (laughs) But don't you remember, like, I think I must have watched a movie about Helen Keller in school or had seen it at some point, but I remember- Wait, I'm excited to hear. What's the thing you remember? Because I have only one scene that I remember. Well, I remember they depicted Helen as being, like, so mean, slapping and hitting her, like, biting, like, super aggressive and, like, you know- just like violent almost Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. like and just like taking it and taking it but like you know i think slapping her back once didn't she like slap her across the face (laughs) my remembering is just a scene and i to be honest can't tell if i remember the scene i made up in my head from learning about it or did we see a movie there probably was a movie i mean quite frankly that's probably what it was we all had a rainy day helen keller right but but I remember her experiencing water and then like um and I want to say it was from some sort of fountain like horse thing. spout, right? Like one yes, of those yes. things the were pump, like the well, the pump. <laughs> yes. And experiencing water and then like riding water and you're just like water or like you're so pumped that she knows what water yes. is. Um that's literally all I remember, but I'm sure we watched an entire film. <laughs> yeah, and so like I mean just how challenging it was because you know Helen obviously no like nobody could get through to her so she was just a naturally very like frazzled like angry child because nothing yes. was making sense like she well it's communicate, like she couldn't nothing was working and no one knew how to work with her it's like having to be honest it's like having a toddler and like a lot of toddlers don't speak for a number of years and you're trying to figure out what they want and they just can't communicate it to you. And that is literally one of the most frustrating. That sucks in interpersonal relationships (laughs) as adults that can see and talk and hear. Um, So yeah, that is super frustrating. The patience that you have to have is um, remarkable. Yeah. And so that's what I'm saying. Like six months to have already accomplished all that is on top of all those other challenges is just wild. So they obviously clicked. Something was just working. So Anne strongly encouraged Helen's parents to send her to the Perkins School so that she could have like a real appropriate education. And once they agreed to it, Anne and Helen packed their bags and were off to Boston together to go stay at the Perkins School together. (laughs) And so with the help of the school's director, Michael, Helen became a public symbol for the school. She helped increase its funding and donations. She basically made it famous and a sought-after school for the blind in the country. 
Except suddenly, and I tried to learn, I tried to research more on this and I couldn't find a lot of info, but at some point shit like hit the fan over there and the school accused Helen of plagiarism. But how do you do that? I don't know. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So. Because did she have something published? Like or I don't know. So I was trying to find out. So basically, they accused her of plagiarism, and it pissed off Anne so much that she took off, left the school, and never returned. Like she was like, "Fuck you! I will never come back to this shithole again." And this was the place she went to. They basically fixed her eyes. She graduated as valedictorian. Helen went and like became you know the queen of the crop there, and they were like famous on this campus. And after this accusation, Anne said, "Fuck you! We're out." Uh, well, which I is think- fitting to per her personality, yes. though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think Helen stayed, but Anne said, "I'm I'm out of here. Like, yeah. I can't be here anymore." And so. I was like, well, where the hell is Helen gonna go? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) True. But I was like, what the fuck could she have done to be plagiarized? Like, I don't understand how that's even possible. I don't get it. Like an assignment she turned in. What's the big deal? Like, yeah, that's crazy. So this is why, why it pissed Anne off so much is because Helen was brought before a court of investigation of teachers and officers at the Perkins Institute. The results of the investigation and the details of the investigation were not provided to Helen. So Helen didn't even know what was going on. (laughs) And they also didn't allow Helen to have Anne with her during the investigation. Helen was completely in the dark. She did not have Anne there. to Like like, literally completely in the dark. Yes. And she did not have Anne there to help translate or, like, communicate what was going on. She also didn't know why she was being investigated. Wait, so she didn't know Perkins what was happening. the Perkins school did this? Yes. Huh. I feel like we both need to quit our jobs right now. <laughs> and we need to do some deep investigative journalism. Right? I'm so bothered. I know. And so I tried looking it up and the only like tiny tidbit of info I could find was, and it didn't even really explain it, but apparently there was like, I don't know if it was a short story, a novel, a poem, some type of piece of literature. I think Helen had to have either recited or... Mm. Uh, written out submitted something like that and they basically came at her and were like no 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 you must have seen this before so they be like i don't and i don't know exactly what how it went down but they basically were claiming that this piece of literature she'd either read it before seen it before heard it before whatever but here's the thing here's the thing like There's only so many music chords, right? There's only so many things. And she doesn't have a full you and I's perspective on language or what have you. Obviously, it's very broad, you know, and she's. But I mean, it's limited, you know? Yeah. So let's say she has, I don't know, 10,000 words. There's only so many options she can come up with. Like, that's so offensive to. Yeah. Anyway. So. Again, I have no clue why this came about, but Helen and Anne felt like it was complete BS, 
and they're pissed. And even Helen had at some point communicated to somebody that she felt like the minute the investigation started, they were already coming at her as if she was guilty. And they were like egging her on to confess. And they kept like Hmm. trying to come up with different ways to get her to admit fault. And so she felt like she was just like already entering a room being like manipulated to confess to something she didn't do. And she didn't have Anne there. She didn't even understand why she was there at first. Like, it was news to her, you know? It wasn't like, hey, we're going to call you into this office because we heard reports of this. They just called her in, and it was like a bombarding. So, yeah, they were – it didn't go down well. And obviously, as I said, Anne said, fuck you, and bounced. And I'm not sure how that whole plagiarism thing played out. I'm pretty sure Helen continued to go to school there, and maybe it was fine. But it caused a bunch of problems between – you know, Anne and Helen, who were like the famous duo of the entire campus. So Anne remained a very close companion of Helen, and she continued to assist in her education, which ultimately included a degree from Radcliffe College. And then on May 3rd, 1905, Anne married a Harvard University instructor named John Albert Macy, who had helped Helen with her publications. And when they got married, Anne was already living with Helen <laughs> as, like, her personal teacher. So John moved into their house. <laughs> and it was just, like, the three of them. But I don't think Anne was really too big on John. Like, she was just like, whatever, you're, like, chopped liver, I don't really care. And within a few years, their marriage began to crumble and they separated. And then... As- I mean, her life was her work. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, She couldn't invest as much as he wanted, I think, is what happened. And so years went by after their separation and John, you know, faded out of Anne's life. But they actually never officially divorced. So they, like, forever remained married, technically. Um, And then Anne also never remarried anybody else. So that was pretty much that in terms of her romantic life. And then in 1932, Helen and Anne were each awarded honorary fellowships from the Educational Institute of Scotland. They were also awarded honorary degrees from Temple University. And by 1935, Anne became blind in both eyes after, as we know, she'd been seriously visually impaired for pretty much her entire life. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then on October 15th in 1936, she had a coronary thrombosis. She fell into a coma and died five days later on October 20th at the age of 70 in the Forest Hills neighborhood of Queens, New York, with Helen Keller holding her hand. Aww. And in 2003... What did Helen do? I know, that's what I was thinking. Like, how did she know? I, I don't know. <laughs> I guess she just, like, I guess, me. I mean, she probably could tell she wasn't breathing and stuff like that. Which, like, Helen Keller had to have been 60? I mean, they were not that far apart in age. Not that far apart, right, yeah. 15 years or so, probably. So, uh, Helen described Anne's last month as being very agitated. But during the last week, she was said to return to her normal, generous self. 
Uh, because of Anne, Helen was able to attend college. She learned Latin, German, and French and was able to read textbooks by signing them into Anne's hand. Anne believed in Helen and never gave up on her for her entire life. Anne was cremated and her ashes were placed in a memorial at the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C., and she was the first woman to be recognized for her achievements in this way. And then when Helen Keller died in 1968, her ashes were placed next to those of her teacher, Anne Sullivan's. Wait, Helen died in 1968, and she was alive in 1890? Probably 1880. Oh, that's right. We were talking about the 1880s earlier. Anne was born that's in 1866. Crazy. She only died in, like, that's crazy. It's It's crazy because when you think of things, and uh, for some reason I've seen a lot of memes lately about this, um... What I under everything, it just seems so long ago to mm-hmm. me, and that was long ago. Obviously, 1880 was long ago, and the start of everything, you know. But to know that that person came into, I don't know, let's say the microwave. <laughs> I don't know when that was invented, but I'm just saying it was somewhere ballpark around that time. It's just crazy to me, like that it really wasn't that long ago, and and that person actually lived during a time that's like understandable to me. Well, also, like they lived. Really long lives for the time period. So, yeah, Helen Keller was born. How they didn't die by a stabbing (laughs) while they were eating is (laughs) unlike you who has risked her life numerous times for a meal. Yes. Yes. Is um, admirable. (laughs) So, yeah, Helen Keller was born in 1880. And she so she was 88 when she died. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. I mean, the fact she must have been tuberculosis immune right i mean at that point (laughs) wow that is so cool there's so much to unpack from that that is such a cool story it's pretty wild i mean i think the craziest part is that we all know that helen keller had a really really hard life that's what we know but we don't hear anything about ann sullivan's hard life and that's interesting yeah, and it wasn't just some average teacher that taught her. I mean, you had to have all that. It was the perfect fit. Yeah. They were kind of like two peas in a pod, you know? They both had yeah. experienced a lot of hardships and struggles. And also, you know, the fact that even Anne was partially blind for most of her life. Like, I never even knew that. You just, I feel like we just learned that there was this great teacher that knew how to teach Helen Keller and that was it. But I don't, re- I don't really remember learning about the fact that she also herself was blind or that she was an orphan or that she was trapped in an institution with cannibalism. Like, huh? It makes, no, no one knew that. <laughs> um, but it makes sense that there's, um, a unique and innate ability for somebody who has a similar struggle to mm-hmm. relate and then provide solutions because they actually are able to relate. So it yeah. makes sense, but yeah. I don't recall that. And I could be wrong. To be honest, there could be some opening scene and credit to a Helen right? Keller movie that explains that, but I don't it. remember any of that. Yeah. No, me either. So I don't know wow. if it's just that, that you know, maybe we did hear Anne's story, but Helen Keller's was more extreme, I guess. Right. 
Yeah. Um, and it just it kind of maybe extreme. was the the bigger story that we kept in our brains. But yeah, I mean, Anne, Anne was a strong woman and I mean, I don't, I don't know what else to say about her. She was a hardcore bitch. Like, <laughs> it's like, yeah, she was a, she was a really cool woman. And I mean, to have gone through what she went through and then came out to be this like miraculous teacher of this child that everybody felt like there was no hope for, like, yeah. And uh, to be honest, I Helen feel like Keller? Helen needed somebody who was able to dedicate her entire life because she didn't have anybody else. Mm-mm. That's the kind of support you like need, you yeah. know? Wow. That's yeah. cool. Super cool, right? Yeah. Cannibalism. <laughs> I didn't expect that to come up. <laughs> All right. Well, you're up to the plate. All right. So what I'm really excited about, which is just very weird and not to get super woo woo, <laughs> but you know, this podcast is a bit woo woo light woo-woo medium uh, at times. And it's really interesting how things kind of just come together. And on one of your uh, podcast episodes, I can't remember how many episodes, maybe one episode ago, um, you had um, your guest, I'm totally blanking on her name, which I apologize for. You formerly worked with her as a bartender. Jenny Brown. Um, Jenny Brown, thank you so much. Fantastic episode. And I reached out to you and told you that I shed a lot of tears on a Saturday morning while brushing my teeth. Um, really unexpected and took me by surprise. But what's super interesting is that is one of the things that I took away from that episode that's going to relate to this whole thing is um, to just put your energy towards the abundance that you currently have in mm-hmm. your life. Okay. That was the biggest takeaway I took from that episode. There were a lot of little nuggets, um, but that was the one that really like took me back. And I almost might cry now, but but I but I've also been drinking, <laughs> so you know. But it was I don't know why that spoke to me so much. But with that being said, you and I have been semi planning this episode um, a little bit, and you know I had been thinking about who to choose, and I have been going through a number of women. I mean, there's so many, right? That's the whole thing about this podcast. There's so many, and I just wanted to check in with you. I shot you a little message that was like, hey, like just a, a kind of general category, just kind of check in. And for whatever reason, you had gave, given me the sneak peek of who you were doing. So I knew you were doing Helen and Sylvan. I knew you were doing Helen Keller's teacher. That's all I knew. And what is so crazy is that there was already some similarities to the people that we chose. Okay. But what's even weirder is that as you shared your story with me, I realized that she's from Ireland and so is my woman. Really? Yes. And it's, and I bring this back because it's one of these things that the person I chose is super inspiring, but it falls, falls into a category that's super close to my heart and really applies to me. Um, and I'll explain that in a moment, but it's just very interesting, the correlation. And listen, we're recording a podcast episode. It is what it is. It's super fun. This podcast is great, but there's just something that parallels with it that just is a universal sign to me that I'm on the right track for something. And I know that that's, again, I told you before I started saying this, it's a bit woo-woo, a bit woo-woo light, a bit woo-woo medium, but there's just something about like listening to those things and so when you mentioned Ann Sullivan I nothing about her like I knew that everything took place in America so for you to bring up that you know she was from you know um an Irish descent is just crazy so yep the person that I'm doing is Kelly Marie Gallagher 
Okay, Kelly Marie Gallagher is a British skier and the first athlete from Northern Ireland to compete in the Winter Paralympics. Okay. Nice. So that's what was so crazy. So when you said that, I was just like, mind blown um so uh a couple reasons why i chose her obviously she is a really awesome person who has achieved a lot but once i start explaining i'll, I'll kind of get into it so kelly marie gallagher was um and she has the title mbe which i'll explain in a moment uh born may 18th 1985 so she is somewhere in her 30s. I know that, and that's accurate only because it's similar <laughs> to my age. Um, okay, so she is a, a British skier and the first athlete from Northern Ireland to compete in the Winter Paralympics. Gallagher is best known in the greater media as Britain's first ever Winter Paralympic gold medal winner during the Sochi 2014 Super G competition. Uh, what's even more incredible about this is that Kelly has oculocutaneous albinism, which is a form of albinism that affects melanin. Uh, melanin is the pigment in your skin, hair, and eyes. Um, and this uh, form of albinism is a condition that affects around 1 in 20,000 people and comes along with visual impairment. So it is so crazy that by no conversation of you and I, we both chose the category of visual impairment. And she happens to be of Irish yeah. descent, which is just crazy to me. Yep. Uh, the reason that I chose and along the lines of the episode that I listened to with Jenny, um, that was... Um, my son actually has albinism. My son was born with albinism. He has oculocutaneous albinism type 2. I believe Gallagher has type 1. There are numerous types of albinism. But I just wanted to dive a little bit deeper into that. There was a calling for me to share a little bit more about that and educate a little bit more about that. Um, so that's why I chose her. But I just think it's validating that you chose a, a right? similar category so at weird. the same time of <laughs> The billions of women in the world. Like, I just can't. Like, so much of me is tingling right now, but also 7.5% alcohol in the beer. So there's <laughs> a lot of And then I almost things. switched it on you at last minute. Thank God I didn't. <laughs> no, you almost switched on me and you mentioned that and I didn't push you. Like, I just, you know, wanted to. But inside I was like, no, the fates are aligning. What are you doing? But anyway, um, so... All right. So a little bit more about albinism and why this um, is so impactful to the accomplishments that she's had. In the case of the eyes, when it comes to albinism, the pigment lacks in the retina. So it's not just what your eye color may look like, mm -hmm. um, but really the structure of the eye lacks pigment. And a lot of people, myself included, before knowing more about this, didn't realize that you actually do create pigment in your retina. And the pigment in the retina um, is super important to the way that the eye functions. Uh, so there are a couple things that happen with that. So one of the things that people or persons with albinism have are nystagmus. Uh, nystagmus is an uncontrolled movement of the eyes. Uh, they can move back, uh, sorry, back and forth. So side to side, uh, up and down, or some have it in a circular uh, motion. And it's uh, uncontrollable and there is no cure or treatment for it. So every person with albinism has their own unique vision, uh, but most have considerable visual impairment and are considered legally blind. And what's interesting is about, about that is that I think a lot of people might hear albinism and think somebody who is very, very pale, but they don't realize that it actually comes with active things that are a disability or mm -hmm. differing abilities that really impact the way that they function in life. So with that, 
Gallagher describes uh, her vision uh, going down the slopes as just a sea of white with an orange color that she follows, which is the bright orange vest of her sighted guide in front of her. Oh, wow. She's a guide. So the way that the competitions work, um, and I'm sure it's different for different ones, but as far as skiing... You have a guide uh, that what's so interesting is that when this all started, it was just potentially like a guide, like there wasn't any standard or qualification for who that guide was. Mm-hmm. It has very much changed. And the person that skis with her now and I guess guides overall are of a much higher caliber, former skiers themselves, professional level that for whatever reason are are maybe not competing at this time. So the caliber of the person that they're partnered with is higher, which just elevates the performance of the actual um, competitor. So what's really cool is that that is... I mean, it is just a whole lot of faith in yourself and your body and just letting go. To be honest, I cannot parallel park without turning down the volume (laughs) in the car, you know? Um, So it's, it's just crazy to me. And I am actually, fun fact about me, I am legally blind. This has zero association with my son, uh, his albinism. That's its own thing. Um, but I have, I saw double for until I was about six years old and I did eye therapy for that. And I am legally blind without correction, but I am able to be corrected. Uh, persons with albinism, uh, the, visual impairment that they have specifically caused by albinism Mm -hmm. is not um, able to be treated. So the vision is not able to be returned to 2020. With my personal glasses and contacts, I can see 2020. Mm -hmm. But without them, you'd be comatose? Yes. Without them, (laughs) I am 20 over 2,600. I I don't even know what that means. So I had to Google it because I didn't actually know what it meant either. (laughs) But I don't see much of anything. It's if, and mind you, I don't function without glasses. Like, I don't often yeah. know what I'm seeing without glasses because I always have glasses or contacts on. But what I see at 20 feet is what a person with 2020 sees at 2,600 feet. Whoa. So I see color, truly. Uh-huh. Like, I see color. I see color, I see gradation of color, and if it's too far in the distance and there's something similar in the background, I don't see that color at all. It blends into the background entirely. So with that being said, I just relate to this a lot in similar ways without being actually able to because I am able to be corrected. So it Mm -hmm. is very different. So Kelly uh, recalls that when she became school age, she realized that she was different. So prior to that, she was living in her home, her life, her environment. Yeah, no idea. No, it doesn't know any different than what you know, which I think is so telling, right? You don't know what you don't know. Um, but in school, she would have to sit beside the teacher away from her friends and her peers to read the whiteboard at a close distance. And it was a surprise to her that other people couldn't see the board because you only know your reality. So mm-hmm. you don't know what other people see. Yeah. Um, so that's when she struggled. She started to have a struggle with herself and was clear that there was a stark difference in Mm -hmm. in the way that she saw and functioned. So there's so much what she describes is that there's just so much light coming into the eye. So the retina lacks pigment. And so when there's light exposure, it floods the eye with so much more light than the average eye that has pigment to the retina. So she just wants to close her eyes 
uh, for a bit and rest. It's just very overwhelming. So at university, she felt anger and annoyance at the lack of understanding for her needs. Uh, throughout time, kind of fitting in between pres- her prescription glasses, her contacts, her sunglasses to prevent from glare, applying daily sunscreen to combat exposure from the sun. So that was kind of her life experience dealing with and managing um, and kind of supporting and not feeling super supported necessarily with her albinism. Uh, she was inspired by Ski Barbie, which I thought was so interesting because the podcast episode you did on Barbie that was so insightful. I just... <laughs> It really like kind of connected for me. So (laughs) as a child, she would cycle and rollerblade. She would sport like on snow-capped mountains in her hometown of Bangor and was uh, that was largely absent from her life. So uh, a hidden sporting inspiration emerged, which was Ski Barbie. She fondly recalled receiving the toy from her late father and how the plastic figurine, unlike Cycle Cindy... couldn't bend her legs. Um, so what Barbie lacked in athleticism, she made up for in glamour and would eventually open up a whole new world to Gallagher. It was not thought, it was not though until an unplanned diversion to Andorra where on holiday, when on holiday with her parents, that a 17-year-old Gallagher would first take to the slopes, which is just like, even just the effort to try, you know, is is so inspiring. So she found it something that really clicked with her because the physicality was being able to move in a wide open space. Everybody's going in the same direction. Yeah. Uh, so you're not trying to cross paths with anyone. And it just captured her, which again is just like, there's something for everyone, you know, and you don't, don't realize that, you know, no, who's skiing and is like, Glad we're all going in the same direction. Dude, I just started skiing again for the first time in like 15 years last year, and I'm nothing short of petrified every single time I get off the ski lift. I think I will die. So, like, I am just mortified skiing. Yeah. Absolutely terrified. Absolutely. <laughs> and I am. And we've talked about it. I'm over the pocket. <laughs> I'm over the pocket of 30 and if something happens to these knees there's no point of no return so I myself am not just trying to jump on slopes uh, no. being someone who is able to see t- you know 2020 so Gallagher made history by becoming Northern Ireland's first winter Paralympian at the Vancouver Games in 2010 uh, though the defining moment of her career to date would come at the 2014 Winter Paralympics in Sochi. Uh, she did this in partnership with her guide, an ex-ski racer named Charlotte Evans. Uh, so that is her her counterpart and has been since that time. Mm-hmm. Now, what's really interesting and something that I got really excited to learn about is the difference between the Olympics and the Paralympics, which I wasn't um, very familiar with. And I don't know if you are as well, because there is the um, Olympics, Paralympics, and then there's the Special Olympics. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I'm going to explain what those are really quickly. So both the Olympics and the Paralympics take place every four years in two segments. There's the Summer Olympics and mm-hmm. there is the Winter Olympics. Olympics and Paralympics take place in the same host city, but a few weeks apart. So they are really kind of following each other. The primary difference between Olympics and Paralympics is that while most participants in the Olympics are able-bodied, the participants in the Paralympics are affected by some form of physical disability. Paralympics originally started as a way to help soldiers that had been wounded in World War II 
uh, to provide a rehabilitating sport for veterans, which eventually turned into a recreational sport with friendly competition. Wow, that's cool. Yeah, that's the roots of where it came from. And then it really expanded from there because there was a need and an opportunity. So finally, it developed into what the Paralympics are today, an Olympic competition for people with disabilities. All the differences are superficial. They are also slight differences regarding the sports played uh, within the games themselves, as well as the country members that participate in the events. One of the biggest drawbacks um, are the hours of the TV programming of Paralympics. Um, so according to TeamUSA.com, it's less than half of the hours of TV programming for the Olympics. So it just doesn't get as much coverage mm -hmm. as, as the Olympics do. But it has doubled since the coverage of Sochi 2014. Um, which is super interesting because that is where she uh, won her gold event. So, oh, how cool. Yeah, it's it's on the right track for gaining visibility. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's almost more yes. fascinating yes. to yes, watch absolutely. these people who are like sometimes like missing limbs and like skiing. Like the yeah. things that are they're able to accomplish, it's insane. It's definitely – I mean, that's what it – the Olympics, in my opinion, are all about pushing your body and level and athleticism. And there's no need for that not to apply athleticism. I mean, there are people that are much more with um, numerous disabilities and are much more athletic than a person who has no uh, physical disabilities. So yeah, super inspiring and exciting that the coverage and um, awareness is growing more and more. Now, the Special Olympics, I just wanted to mention because that was probably what I was more confused on personally. The Special Olympics, on the other hand, have quite a few differences from the other two. Those are hosted by the Special Olympics organization and are focused more on participants with intellectual disabilities. Their events take place at any time all around the world. Uh, they aren't limited to every four years. The Special Olympics consist of a regional a national and international competitions in which they add up to more than 108,000 events every year. So wow. they're going on in your community. Um, they're a great thing to support. Uh, the goal is not competition like in the Olympics and the Paralympics. It's rather participation. So uh, we had a Special Olympics at my high school. Really? Yeah. So I went to a high school, a Catholic private high school, and like we had to go through like a ton of like volunteer type work to mm -hmm, graduate. Mm -hmm. But they yeah, had same. this huge event that took place on campus that was called Special Olympics. And they brought in a bunch of people. And so I got paired with like another student and then we, as a team, we were paired with a like grown man who was participating in the Special Olympics. And so we were like his, I guess, uh, chaperone or something. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so we would go with him to each little event and he would do all these different races and like obstacle type things and we would cheer for him. <laughs> like we would take That's him so to, like, awesome. through You were his route. personal cheer group for sure. Yeah. And it was so, I mean, it was really wild because like if you think about it, I was probably 15 and there was so much happening because one, I had to like work with this football dude who was like somebody I would never even be friends with. And we had to like make friends in the moment and like 
take care support of this, this guy. Well, yeah. Also, the man that we were paired with was deaf. He was he could see, but he was deaf, but he also like could not communicate. So there mm-hmm. was like no way to like have a conversation with him. So we kind of have to like guide him from spot to spot. Um, but I remember like at one point he went to the bathroom and like didn't come out for forever. Oh no. And I had to like send Ryan in to like get him because I was like a young girl and I wasn't right. gonna go like into the bathroom. And, um, but you know, things like that, like I'm having to, we're navigating that at 15 years old, you know, there, it wasn't yeah. like we could go to like the principal and be like, we don't know what happened. Help us. Like they were like, you're on your own, figure it out. So like, <laughs> me and this football guy, we're having to like, just figure out this whole day with this grown adult man who could not communicate with us and was deaf. So that's, that's crazy. Like to think that. I that- mean, and Sullivan. And Helen what? Keller. Oh, yeah, I know, right? <laughs> That's so awesome. Yeah. Uh, so the Special Olympics um, hopes to help differently abled athletes through the focus and determination of the sport. Uh, and they also help to train them throughout the year in order to get them ready for their respective events. Um, so a little bit on the difference of those, which I found super insightful because I really wasn't aware of all those differences. So that was great. Uh, after an amazing win in 2014, Kelly Gallagher was awarded an MBE. So I mentioned that that was a little uh, title that she has at the end of her name. Uh, it's a member of the Ordish... <laughs> <clears throat> member of the order of the British Empire. Uh, so I don't know about you. I go deep into the Downton Abbey. I am all about any kind of British television or procedural. So uh, I love to hear about stuff like this. So an honor such as an MBE, they are awarded biannually uh, once at New Year's and then again for the Queen's birthday. And it recognizes excellence in a spectrum of pursuits uh, ranging from arts and athletics to science and politics. So she was awarded that honor and was able to meet the Queen, which as How you cool. know, uh, is real big. I mean, I'd be excited to, I'm American and I'd be excited to meet the Queen. Um, much more than most political figures here. So very <laughs> exciting. She's actually like a non-political figure. But anyway, in 2017, uh, the World Championships, uh, Kelly Gallagher sustained a dislocated elbow and three fractured ribs in an accident and was airlifted to a local hospital during that training. So Ugh. and that's, you know, that's a, a nice reminder of a nice reminder that might not be the best choice of words, a real reminder of the dangers that it comes from any um, athletic uh, sport, but oh, yeah. it, more so. Uh, so hers was going off course and uh, getting caught up in a net. So mm-hmm. actually the thing that likely saved her, of course, is the thing that causes still a bunch of extreme physical damage. So um, with that, she actually next ended up participating in the 2019 World Championships. In the 2019 World Paralympic Ski Championships, um, she narrowly missed out on medals in the slalom and the giant slalom by finishing fourth. And she was off by a tenth of a second uh, to actually oh, wow. achieving medal. So it was super close. And they did claim, though, they being her team. Um, however, they claimed their first medal of the championships in the downhill where they took a silver um, behind Fitzpatrick and uh, Kehoe. They went on to take two bronzes in the Super G combined, increasing Gallagher's number of world medals to nine. So the other great thing about really what 
Gallagher has done is that a huge part of her accomplishments she really likes to share with promoting positive associations with albinism in the media and educating communities and schools about what albinism actually is and uh, why it's so important to know. Um, she says that she was fortunate to be born in a society where pioneers before her fought hard for equality for people living with disabilities. Equality is enshrined in our laws and acts like the Disability Discrimination Act and Section 75 in Northern Ireland have benefited her greatly um, from the work done before, enabling her access to quality education, achievement in her career. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she mentioned that she never felt like she couldn't do whatever job it is that she was inclined to do. She just may need a couple things to help her complete her task or do her work, but those things were easily and readily accessible to her. Uh, the reason that this is so such a huge thing is that comparatively and quite similarly, other peers with her appearance um, in society and her differing abilities don't come from a place that has those kind of standards for people. So um, simple things like good skincare and sunscreen. There are people and families with albinism in other countries who experience high levels of skin sc- skin cancer because of poor management of skincare, knowledge and access to not only good skincare, but also what albinism truly is, those people are being ostracized from their communities and persecuted because of their differing appearance. There is a lot of persecution of people with albinism across the world. So um, she's really taking her platform to educate outside of just um, differing abilities as a whole, but also kind of honing in on albinism specifically. Uh, her goal and dream is for everyone living with albinism to live free from discrimination and disadvantage, to have access to health services, which can better equip them from protecting their skin, having access to technology and optometry services in order for each person to fulfill their dreams and potential. Every person with albinism has a different ability to see. So it's a mm-hmm. very broad range that isn't always supported. And as far as an update now, because that actually wasn't that long ago, 2019, seems like a long time ago, but it wasn't. Um, she had a baby in 20, baby girl in 2020. Um, and due to the pandemic, the outlook for her competing in the Winter Paralympics in Beijing in 2022 are pretty up in the air at right? this point. For real. Um, <laughs> for a lot of oh, reasons. Oh, man. Which is so crazy because do you remember when they announced that it was going to be Beijing? And so you're like, Beijing! And then now it's just like, that feels weird. Yeah, totally. Yep. So that is the inspirational story of Kelly Gallagher. Um, She is in her early 30s. And I just think it's super cool and inspiring. And I think one of the things that we've shared is just, uh, and you've shared a lot on your podcast and what it is to share these women is taking just who you are and making that be the advocacy and inspiration for others. It's really just kind of focusing on you and that effect really ripples. And Mm -hmm. I thought it was super awesome. Um, But I'm still blown away at how parallel those stories were. So hell yeah. Well, I have a couple of questions. Yeah. I don't know if I have the answers. Well, so one thing I was curious when you said that she had like a guide while she was skiing, was that person just somebody that like skied alongside of her or were they like attached? So that person skis ahead of her. Okay. 
so that she can follow the orange vest. Got it. So if something happens to the guide and the guide (laughs) honestly biffs it and goes off course, I would imagine her only recourse is to stop. Yeah. You know, is to slow down and stop as quickly as as Uh she possibly can. Uh, There are different competitions that involve different things. But I am telling you, I highly encourage our our audience as well and you to just Google really quick uh, Mm -hmm. her competition, her name, Kelly Gallagher, 2014 Social. I was in tears. I cried. Because it's hard to do that, like, seeing. Yeah, yeah. But there's a confidence to flinging your body down a mountain yeah um following the moves and sticking within the lines and then clearing um the end it it's super inspirational and um but yes i don't know what happens when something happens to the guide because all she sees is white and orange Mm -hmm. and she's following a color do you happen to know if the people that she's competing against are also visually impaired or do they have other types yes, of things going I, on? That's a really good question. I believe so. Like it's 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 like a visually impaired skiing group. I don't want to speak out of turn, but I believe so. Okay. I do believe so. I guess I'm curious like is there a understood correlation in terms of pigment and visual impairment like is there a re is it like a cause and effect like does one come first and it affects the other or like what is that how does that work so the lack of pigment so the interesting thing is that pigment is found in the skin and pigment is found in the hair that's known and common mm-hmm. and uh, yes the Interesting thing is the only other place in the body that pigment is found is in the first, I believe it's the first six weeks of development in utero. Pigment is created when creating the structure of the retina. Oh, wow. So when you have albinism, you can, um, so as an example, um, I believe Kelly has type one, type one albinism are commonly seen are what people think when they think albinism. Very, very fair, pale skin, almost white to maybe a whitish yellow hair, and almost seemingly obviously have albinism. To be honest, it kind of varies. But for type 2, what my son has, there is a varying range. Um, As you know, you've seen my son. He's extremely fair, but he's just extremely fair. If you didn't know uh, what his parents looked like, you would just think that he was a blonde-haired, blue-eyed boy. But he does not create pigment. No one with albinism does. They don't create pigment to protect themselves from the sun when they're exposed. So you and I have a tan mm-hmm. when we're exposed. Um, He doesn't. But there's other people that don't have albinism that have fair skin. You know, mm-hmm. they have super fair skin and burn very easily. But that didn't affect the pigment that was created in their retina. Got it. So it's basically when they're in the body and they have, like, once albinism is happening and they're in development, that that type of retina pigment, whatever is happening there, is what is causing that visual impairment in development? 
Yes, there is a lack of pigment. Now, my son, for example, has a little more pigment than is on average seen in someone who has albinism. So it varies. Okay. Um, there are cones, which actually might sound familiar to you for whatever reason. And maybe it's because I'm blind. It sounds familiar to me, but there are cones that develop in the retina. That's what creates the, it takes in the image that you're mm-hmm. seeing and, and it's a signal to the brain and it's a whole thing that works together. Those cones are kind of compact all together in the back of the retina. And when you have albinism and you have a range of a little bit of pigment that might be created, you may have a little bit. So my mm-hmm. son has a little bit. That allows for him to not be quite as light sensitive as many people that have albinism, but to have a definite skewed visual acuity that comes from lacking that pigment. But that is definitely something that happens in utero, mm-hmm. um, is associated with albinism, and I believe it's one in every thousand people are carriers for albinism. Wow. Um, you have to that's, actually. That's like actually more than I would have thought. Well, that it's so technically in that way it's common, um, but you have to meet and reproduce with a person who has a change in the same exact type. So there's a number of, of types of albinism. So the change has to be in the exact same gene sequence. And it's a one in four chance of having a child who expresses albinism. Whoa. Which is why the number becomes so much more rare because we could yeah. all be floating around with a change, but unless you... You have to find um, somebody else who also... Wow, who that's also, so wild. And then one in four chance after that. So um, I mean, at that point, it almost just feels like fate. Absolutely. Like the unlikelihood of that happening. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and you know what's what's really interesting and I think the part that I find the most interesting is, you know, people just chop it up to a difference in skin tone and 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 hair color. Um but when it comes to visual impairment, yes, if you see somebody with nystagmus, you'll likely notice that their eyes are moving consistently, but people don't realize that people that are a majority of people, I want to say it's something like only 15% of all people in the world with visual impairment are actually what people consider truly blind, unable to see, whereas there's a very, very, very broad range. And it's an invisible disability unless mm-hmm. you outrightly have a walking cane or you have a seeing eye yeah. you know, guide dog. People don't realize or know. So awareness to it and just an understanding and a consideration, I think, is something that can go a long way and people don't realize. I mean, no one knows. I've told, it's crazy. I've told people like, hey, (laughs) if we're together in some sort of natural disaster that causes me to to lose my contacts, like, please don't forget about me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, my boyfriend's pretty much blind and like, it's, it's crazy because I, this is, I've never lived or been in contact with somebody who has visual problems and he wears glasses he doesn't even wear contacts he wears glasses but like some of our arguments will be when i move things around and they aren't in the place that they are usually in yeah and so he gets very like used to things being where they're at and then it's completely up, like out of my conscious when things get moved where I'm just like, oh, well, this is going to go here today, that that could like fuck up his entire day. <laughs> you know what I yeah. mean? And so there was like a series of like weeks that had happened where I kept, I guess, switching the location of the shampoo and the conditioner. Like 
I was going from one place to the next to the next. Well, that's I'm just grabbing a bottle, yes, putting it down, in the grabbing shower? a bottle, putting it down. Like I'm not fucking sorting shit. Like I'm just grabbing a bottle and putting it down. But then when he'd go in, it would be the opposite of where it was last. And now he's squirting out something that's the wrong thing. <laughs> and it would be like, God damn it, Melissa. <laughs> that's so crazy. It's definitely the kind of thing that – so for that case, in that instance, he's not wearing his glasses, of no, course, because he's in he the shower. No, anything. I used to get into the shower with my glasses <laughs> until they fogged. And then I couldn't, of course, I couldn't at that point. And then I got contacts. I believe I was in fourth grade when I got contacts. And I actually now am so blind that the government pays for my contacts annually because it's a medical necessity because my prescription is so high that I have a little bit of distortion and see better with actual contacts on the lens sitting on my eye. But the crazy thing is, is that you can be corrected. Like I can be corrected. People with albinism are unable to be corrected. So there are certain things that can help a little bit with visual acuity, but they're never going to see 2020. Um, So there will always be an impairment. Oh, man. And at the end of the day, it's really just exciting to advocate for a world where everyone just has not an exact equal opportunity. I think that that's pretty specific, but just an opportunity to be able to be at their highest potential, whatever that might be for any individual. Yeah, totally. But I tell you, watch this video. I will. It is. I'll link it in the description, too, so everybody else can watch it. Yeah, that would be awesome. It is It is super cool. So I just think it was really awesome that we both Hell yeah. chose who we chose and how um, similar it was. And um, I hope it inspires other people. So cool. And just like, just like you said, just total divine intervention that we both picked. People that had very similar stories. Yeah. That's really that's awesome. awesome. And by chance. Yeah. So cool. Another great episode. So good. So needed. Thank you so much for sharing and telling us more about albinism and your son and your life story as well. I think it is definitely um, an awesome educational point that everybody could benefit from learning more about. Yeah, it's an not to not to be punny, but it is an eye-opening experience. Uh, and- <laughs> honestly that's what this podcast does so it's exciting to be a part of that so thanks for having me thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of the mimosa sisterhood podcast that was such a fun informative episode how crazy is ann sullivan's life how did we not know these things and kelly gallagher what a gem honestly like I learned so much from Maddie Soul about albinism, about visual impairment, about how the eyes work, like mind blown. So I hope everybody enjoyed that episode as much as I did. And I just wanted to remind you guys, we have a podcast phone number where you can call in and leave me a two minute voicemail that I would love to feature in one of my upcoming minisodes. So I'm launching my minisodes in the next couple of weeks. I would love to hear your voice and feature your story in those segments. So you can call 562 270-4914 and either tell a story about a special woman in your life that deserves some recognition or just say hi, tell me where you're from, how you found the podcast and what's cracking in your life. 
So I'd love to hear from all of you and stay tuned for the first mini with Mel coming this month. Bye guys. See you next time.